This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Stacy Denton is an organic flower farmer, bioregional seed grower, and homesteader based in the Klamath Siskiyou region of Southern Oregon. Trained in ecology, permaculture, organic farming, and seed growing and saving, Stacy makes her community based life with her daughter Hannah and her parents nearby. Stacy and I connected over the importance of bioregional seed growing, sourcing, knowing, and supporting at the Slow Flowers Summit held at Filoli in the summer of 2021. Stacy, I'm so pleased to have you join me today to share more about this topic you and I both love. Welcome to Cultivating Place. Yeah, thanks for that generous introduction, Jennifer. It's an honor to be here. I love your program, and um, I'm glad to speak for the good work of caring for seeds. So thanks for the invitation, and also just want to thank all of the mentors and my ancestors who brought me to this place and time to be able to speak with you. That is a, a great place to start, um, you acknowledging your ancestors and mentors, which no doubt include the land and the flowers and the seed themselves. If I were to ask you to give me a kind of primary intention or motivation or mission for your own work with plants and seeds right now, Stacy, what would that be? I think to begin answering that, I just want to place myself. I live in the Klamath-Siskiyou bioregion in a small town called Williams in Southern Oregon. And I've been here for 19 years. I live on a slightly sloped south-facing four-acre property amongst Douglas fir, ponderosa pine, sugar pine, incense cedar, madrones, and oaks. And um, all of those plants that are my neighbors and my, like you said, mentors to some degree in my life are a big part of why I live where I live. I am homesteading here with my 14-year-old daughter. I have a cat and many, many plants. My folks, as you said in the introduction, live next door to me. And I am growing food crops for home use and I grow flower crops for our personal enrichment as a family, but also for my business. I um, have a business called Flora Farm and Design Studio, and it's something that I've been working on for the last 13 years. I um, am specifically focused on growing flower crops, and what I do with that is I grow cut flowers for weddings, special events, CSA, national food stores, custom orders. I have a little online store and a little farm stand. So fresh cut flowers are the bulk of what I do. But in addition to that cut flower work, I also grow flower seed crops. And um, the flowers are, that term flower is something that I use kind of broadly to describe the annuals, biennials, and perennials that are a part of my farming system here. And so I grow things that people think of typically as flowers, plants like zinnias or sunflowers or marigolds. But in addition, that term flower for me also includes other botanical components like um, plants that lend texture and dimension to my floral design work. So things like grains, amaranth or quinoa, 
filler flowers, things like Ami Visnaga or Feverfew. I grow foliage plants like Euphorbia and Bupleurum. I grow spikes, plants that are like Celosia, for example, or Veronica. And I grow eye-catching seed pods, the, the real characters of the, the farm, stuff like uh, Scabiosa stellata and Nigella. And um, yeah, because I have a cut flower business, I am relying on a lot of different plant material to put together my floral designs, either mixed bouquets or full-scale floral installations for weddings. And I'm growing about 200 different varieties of both herbaceous and woody plants here for that cut flower business. And then every year I end up growing seed crops, probably 10 to 20 different varieties in a given year. So for example, this year I'm growing um, for seed bachelor's button, dill, orlia, broom corn, chinua, uh, calendula, marigolds, and Veronica, and a couple different kinds of yarrows. And in addition to um, just actually growing those seeds for my use on farm, I'm also wholesaling some of those seeds to a bioregional seed company called Siskiyou Seeds. So the overall purpose of my work is, of course, livelihood, to be able to earn income for myself and my daughter to survive on, um, but also on the bigger level to um, have a good life, a life that is rooted in the natural world and the changing seasons and in the very elements that, that make our lives possible, whether that be seed or water, earth, air, or sun. There are a couple of terms that you used that I would love to have you kind of gloss for listeners. When you say you are homesteading, what does that mean? Well, for me, homesteading is um, trying to live off a parcel of land, off of uh, what's here on the little piece of earth that I've had the good fortune to be able to to tend, um, live off of it by growing my own, as much of my own food as possible. So for me, that means growing uh, fruit trees and medicinal plants. I also do a lot of natural dyeing, so dye plants. It means growing annual food crops and perennial food crops that um, make up a s- significant portion of our diet. And for me, it also means doing things like tending the two acres of forest that are in my care, uh, managing them so that they're more resilient for fire and um, collecting uh, wood off of them to make fire in the wintertime to keep my house warm, felling trees um, as needed for building projects and milling them up with a a small portable mill that I have a friend who who runs for me will bring over and and make uh, trees here on my farm into lumber for building. So, you know, in essence, trying to steward this land so that I can meet as as large of a portion of my needs for medicine and food and shelter as possible. Yeah. So I I guess maybe I could distill that down in 
tending the land in such a way that you can live off the land in as many ways as possible and the land is regenerated in all of its systems. Yeah, ideally that's what I'm striving for. Um, I don't have farm animals, so at this point I'm definitely bringing in fertility for my gardens, but I'm doing, doing so by accessing that from a local organic dairy. So really trying to to make as make my systems on the farm as integrated and whole as possible. I love this idea, not only of how you are living in partnership with the land, but also this idea of that equating to a good life for you. And I would love to have you take listeners back to your earliest influences and the the people and places and plants that grew you into a woman and a mother and a businesswoman for whom this would be a quality life and these would be valuable activities. So maybe start with where you were born and raised and some of your maybe earlier plant influences and catalysts. Yeah, I was born in Los Angeles and I grew up in Southern California until I was 13. And then my family moved to Northern Arizona, to Sedona. You know, in my early years of living in a very suburban environment with lots of people, cars, and smog, I had very uh, limited interactions with what I'd call the natural world, with um, plants in their native um, ecosystems, ecosystems that hadn't been so heavily impacted by humans. And so moving to Sedona was a very profound experience for me as a young person. I awoke to a love for beautiful places. Um, You know, I'd never really experienced such close contact with pristine ecosystems before. And, And when I lived in Sedona in the early 90s, it was very well protected. So yeah, hiking and swimming along the creeks and rivers in northern Arizona was a foundational experience for me. And and I ended up living there just for four short years during high school. And I decided to go to college in the city of Seattle, where I studied ecology. And um, the program that I studied in was an interdisciplinary disciplinary program, so not just the hard sciences, but also the humanities. And um, yeah, we were looked at ecosystems, but also how humans um, impacted or interacted with those ecosystems. And um, I got really inspired about gardening when I lived in Seattle. I was really looking for a way to put some of the ideals that I was cultivating at the t- that time in my life into practice. And it really made sense to me to start with the food that I ate every day to be able to do that. So I started getting excited about gardening and took classes at Seattle Tilth and um, from the master composter program. And eventually my last year of college did an independent study in permaculture. So then as I began to grow my first garden, the first step in my city yard was to sheet mulch out the lawn that was there. And after a winter of cardboard and um, compost sitting on top of it, 
there on that lawn, the lawn could uh, disappeared and was able to be planted the next spring with seeds. And I planted my very first seeds that that spring. I had ordered them from the the old Seeds of Change catalog when when that was still going in those years of the late '90s. And I remember planting sunflowers and corn and nasturtiums. Those were those were some of my first seeds. And um, yeah, I wanted to deepen the experience of understanding not just annual annual gardening, but how to have create a create human settlements in this way that permaculture models and um, and has been informed by traditional societies across the world, how we can have human habitats that are modeling the principles found in the natural world. And so I went and I lived for a year after college with the Bullock brothers, uh, this family that lives on Orcas Island, who'd been working on developing their homestead out there for, at that time, it'd been about 20 years. And I lived with them and helped them to tend their nursery, a nursery that they used for planting there on their property, but also they sold nursery stock of edible and medicinal plants. And with them, I, I learned to start other seeds in the greenhouse for the annual gardens around their homestead. And we did everything on the property to tend to the built landscapes of, or the, the built structures, I should say, of um, things like setting up an outdoor kitchen or doing landscape plantings on gray water systems or even just the maintenance and restoration of old wheelbarrows. And it was living there in Orcas that I got bit by the, the bug of country living and having work and my daily life really based on work on the land. And while I lived on Orcas, I met Matthew Dillon from the Abundant Life Seed Foundation. And that's who I first heard about small-scale seed growing from. He uh, was, I think, trying to look for other farmers and gardeners who might grow seed for the Abundant Life Seed Foundation at that time. And I was just fascinated about the possibility somewhere down the road when I might have the skill to do something like that. And just uh, really intrigued about the whole process of seeing a seed from its planting all the way through its life cycle to it to the making of new seed. This is Cultivating Place. Stacy Denton is an organic flower farmer, bioregional seed grower, and homesteader based in the Klamath Siskiyou region of Southern Oregon. In this early part of autumn, Stacy is sharing her experiences and belief in the joys and power of bioregional seed in these times. We'll be back with more when Stacy shares with us about her seed saving and seed growing education. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Now past the new moon of this new season, and we even got rain here last week. An unusual and incredibly welcome two inches, helping to dampen our fire season and lift our plant spirits headed into fall. 
I spent last week in central Ohio speaking to students, gardeners, and landscape architects at Miami University, for the De Fleur Garden Club of Oxford, for the city of Oxford, and then as a keynote speaker at the MKSK Landscape Architecture's annual design summit for their 12 regional offices in eight states across the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, Midwest, and even Southeast. Over the course of the week, every single interaction was expanding for me, and the diversity of plant people, plant work, plant approaches, planting purposes gave me renewed hope that it is going to be, that it is plant-loving people at all levels that help us all to meet the challenges we face currently, from climate change to social polarization and biodiversity loss. In a capstone senior class at Miami University, a student asked me, how do we know we're doing the right things? Pursuing the right things, not making things worse. And I had to think really carefully about this as a whole class of bright, caring humans about to go off into the big world listened to my answer. And finally I said, Listen carefully. Slow down and listen to what draws you, what scares you, what lights you up, what you can hear in your heart grows the world around you better. Listen and follow those directions. Our plants do this all the time, don't they? They adjust, they adapt, they put all of their resources into the health of the next generation and thriving for exactly that creation of the next generation. Let's listen to them. Keep gardening, sometimes done best by listening careful he. Full of care, keep gardening. We're back now to our conversation with Stacy Denton of Flora Farm and Design Studio. Stacy is an organic flower farmer, bioregional seed grower, and homesteader. After her homesteading and nursery apprenticeship with the Bullock Brothers Farm on Orcas Island off the coast of Washington, Stacy partnered with a friend to follow their shared desire to start a nonprofit farm based educational center focused on sustainable living, which they did when, in 2002, they founded the White Oak Farm and Education Center there in Williams, Oregon. Incidentally, a renowned seed-growing region of the U.S. As we come back, Stacy shares more on this progression into flowers and deeper into seeds. What I wanted to do is uh, have a little bit of a business that I could grow as my daughter got bigger, um, but I wanted to make a business that would be rooted in a farm crop that that I felt more like I would have a better economic return with. So I had a couple of friends that had started growing flowers in particular for weddings and special events. And this was in 2008, far before really what what most people have uh, become familiar with in the last few years of the growth of the slow flowers movement. I 
took up this focus of growing flowers for for weddings and um that was just uh, such an enjoyable experience to be back out in the community to be involved with celebrations of love and then the flowers themselves uh fed my spirit in a lot of ways i'd previously grown flowers as a part of the csa at white oak and definitely had grown them when i lived with the bullocks but i'd always thought of flowers as a little bit honestly less important than the food crops you know my initial my initial drive to get into the garden was very oriented towards sustainability and it was really a utilitarian goal but over time i've really come to understand that flowers nourish us on a, a level that's just as profound and important as as the way food and medicine nourishes us as humans and so did seeds have a role to play in this new season of your life stacy I began to have a lot of sort of incidental seed crops that I could harvest from the flower field, things like echinacea or echinops, the globe thistle, or a rudbeckia or a yarrow. This is seed I could collect from the perennial plants that were staples in taking me through the many months of the flower growing year. Um, but I didn't end up in those early years harvesting all the flowers, even though I'd be growing a couple hundred of a given variety. And so I would let them go to seed. And fortunately, uh, there's this local small seed company here in Williams. It's called Siskiyou Seeds. And I approached my friend and the owner of Siskiyou Seeds, Don Tipping, and, and asked him if he would have any need for uh, some of these slightly more specialty flower seeds he was offering at the time uh, some perennial flower seed but mostly he was offering the larger seeded flower gardening staples like marigolds and cosmos and calendula and zinnias and and so he was open and very encouraging and in those first couple of years of my flower business I had several of these, as I say, incidental seed crops that I was able to, to sell to him for a little bit of extra money. But really, it was great for me to see that I could be uh, harvesting multiple crops off of one plant. And, and then I could be sharing by way of Siskiyou Seeds, by way of the company seeds with my broader community. So that kind of incidental seed uh, growing began to evolve over time with Siskiyou seeds, and I started growing annual crops like the ones that I mentioned earlier. I'd grow in a given year just one variety of zinnia, and I'd grow them for my garden, uh, for my own personal enrichment, for my flower business, and, and then also for Siskiyou seeds. Likewise, I do that for one calendula and one cosmos. I would uh, limit myself to just one in those years so that there was no danger of these cross-pollinating seeds not being true to type when I went to go, you know, offer them to the seed company. Yeah, and just over the years, I've increased the number of seed crops that I purposely include in my farm production plan to the point of, like I said earlier, doing about 10 to 20 crops in a given year. 
first thing I would like to do is have you actually define what you mean, both in words and perhaps in practice, by bioregional seed. What does that mean to you? And why does that matter, Stacy? Well, seeds adapt to the soil and weather, other living things, and the culture of the region in which they're planted. So here in the Klamasiskus, things are growing likely differently than they are, say, in the humid South in the United States. And so maybe also define what you mean by seeds adapt to culture. How those plants are tended. For example, are the plants grown organically? Are they, even in an organic system, fertilized heavily? Are they watered heavily? You know, a plant that is receiving a lot of fertility inputs and a lot of water is going to look very different than a plant that is experiencing the stress of slight or consistent drought (laughs) or um, a plant that has, let's say, is growing in soil that's high in heavier metals, like we see in some parts of the Siski where we have serpentine soils or Um, a plant that is in a soil that um, is perhaps overwatered. Like I have certain sections of my field that um, retain a lot of water because of their clay layer. And um, so the plants there sit in water for a while. And sometimes they they get really stressed from from the water in that soil. They're, They're going to, they have a different expression in this life and that, in subsequent generations, they're going to be impacted by the time and place in which they were grown. So um, another thing about culture, when I talk about plants being impacted by the culture in which they're grown, we um, perhaps as seed growers, um, either purposefully or without intention, are selecting for traits that we that we see perhaps we have an especially flavorful tomato that we want to save seed from or perhaps we prefer as is my case double petaled flowers like the kinds of sunflowers that have ray flowers all the way to the center or let's talk about the queen lime zinnia series that has beautiful expression of ray ray petals all the way to the center Maybe people are selecting for traits like that. Um, Certain plants also experience, depending on whether grown, specific disease or pest pressures. So all of these elements make their way into what a plant is growing, what is impacting the life of a plant. And um, here in the Klamasiskus, we have a very uh, regionally specific set of characteristics that impact the plants that we grow. And so things that grow here probably are going to express differently than things that are grown in the Northeastern United States or things that are grown in in China or the Netherlands. These are other regions of the world where seeds are commonly grown. And so something that is grown overseas is likely going to have a very different set of circumstances that impact it, which are going to be different than what plants that grow here in my garden experience most likely. Then the importance, right, is 
is that harnessing that adaptability to best effect wherever you might be planting, being aware of it, but also preserving it and putting it to good use. Yeah. And then if we look at the bigger picture, for example, the West is seeing severe drought in these most recent years. And I am growing in a a set of summer circumstances where there's smoke for four to six weeks these days every summer. And so I know that the plants that I'm growing and the seed that makes it in my garden is likely going to be able to withstand similar circumstances in other parts of the West. Um, I think that's on a, a broader scale, the, the imperative of this time to be growing or buying bioregionally adapted seed is that, um, is that we have a, a significantly and rapidly changing climate. And it's important that we have seeds that are going to be evolving with the unique and new and changing climate conditions that we're experiencing in our particular places. And so how do you share this knowledge and skill forward, Stacey? Because I think that sometimes is the hard part, right? I like to uh, work also at inspiring others to save seed. Uh, One of the ways that I do that is I've been teaching with Siskiyou Seeds Seed Academy. So uh, maybe somewhere between five to 10 years ago, Dawn at Siskiyou Seeds started this program to teach gardeners, farmers, seed advocates, or or people who are striving to be one or all of those things, how to grow and process seed. So the basic how-to of that, but then also how to um, do some plant breeding and plant selection in the field. And I think it's just so vitally important that there is a greater seed literacy developed within the broader population of people. Most gardeners and farmers don't save their own seeds. And I, I can understand that it can be intimidating. The process is sort of mysterious in a way. I think that's, there's, that's part of the mystique of seed in, the, in a sense where seed is this wondrous, miraculous little little thing that it's just a miracle to watch sprout and then grow into a huge plant. And there's a way in which that mystique sort of keeps the, the process of how to bring seed into its next generation a little bit out of reach for people or a little bit mysterious for people. So, so I really like to be a part of in, in this seed academy because I, I think that what needs to happen is a democratization of seed. Yes. Oh, yes. Say more on this. Where instead of the know-how of how to propagate seed being within the hands of just private industry, that gardeners and farmers need to share with each other and bring back to their gardens like, like it was done in old times and like has been done throughout the story of human history 
the endeavor of of tending and observing and gathering and saving seed and so yeah one of the ways in which i do that is is through teaching with the seed academy and do you cover all kinds of seed in this work i particularly focus on teaching about flower seeds with them um but another way that i'm trying to take up that task is recently i've been networking with a bunch of other cut flower growers that are members of a trade organization called the Pacific Northwest Cut Flower Growers Association. And um, I am trying to put together a network of cut flower growers that are already growing seed for their farm businesses or want to grow seed for their farm businesses so that we can exchange with one another crops that we've volunteered to steward for the network. Wow, that is fantastic. And so how is that going? So it's just in its very infancy, but I I see this as another route for working with my colleagues in the cut flower business to try to re-engage this very traditional activity of saving seed, but one which has been lost to a lot of gardeners and farmers because of lack of know-how or or just the, some other barriers like secrecy and the consolidation in the seed world or or even just uh, farmers are busy people and sometimes it's just way easier to buy your seed than it is to go through the process of at the end of a long and tiring farming season do one more task of collecting and um, processing seeds. So anyway, I think that it's just vital that we engage different methods of making seed more accessible to ourselves as growers and to, to one another as gardeners who care, who, who want to be able to have access and know how and transparency and security in where their seed comes from. This is Cultivating Place. Stacy Denton is the founder and owner of Flora Farm and Design Studio. She is an organic flower farmer, bioregional seed grower, and homesteader based in the Klamath Siskiyou region of Southern Oregon. A strong advocate for bioregional seed and its adaptive knowledge and traits, and for us as gardeners knowing seed better. We'll be right back with more from Stacy. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer, thinking out loud here. So are you saving seeds this year? Which ones? Any tips you want to share with other people? Any seed-saving resources or tips you'd like to share as well? If so, let me know. I would love to share these forward. You know how. Send me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com, or tag me or DM me on Instagram, where you will find me at cultivating underscore place. Can't wait to hear your seed-saving stories and tips for others.
We're back now to our conversation with Stacy Denton of Flora Farm and Design Studio. Once Stacy began her flower, and then incidentally at first her seed growing, she went on to teach at Siskiyou Seeds Online Seed Academy. And from there, she went on to share seed growing, processing, saving, and seeds themselves more and more. Flora Farm and Design Studio and Siskiyou Seeds represents a growing renaissance of small regionally based seed stewards. As we come back, Stacy shares more of her experience around this same observation and this renaissance. I am consistently inspired by other people doing this work. As I mentioned, Southern Oregon is an area where there has been a traditional seed growing and a lot of the seed farmers in this area are growing seed for uprising, for southern exposure even, for johnnies, for high mowing. And uh, they're growing seed already for other small or mid-sized, mid-scale seed companies in the United States. And so I, I definitely have gained tools and tips from these other seed growers in my area. And in addition, uh, their work is mirrored by seed growers, especially in the Pacific Northwest, but other parts of the Pacific Northwest that have developed from their farm seed saving practices, small seed companies. And I continue to see new small seed companies popping up. One of the One of the farmers here in Southern Oregon, her farm is called Feral Farm. She has been a grower for Siskiyou Seeds for the last few years, and she's just recently started a packet business. Another farmer up in Washington State on Vashon Island who took the Seed Academy with us at Siskiyou Seeds is starting a small packet business. So yeah, I continue to see people starting either packet businesses that are serving their very local community or that they're able to scale up their packet businesses to have online stores and be selling in a larger area or across the nation or internationally. And there's just a lot of these seed companies that have their foundation in their bioregion that are small, maybe approaching small to mid-size that began with their home farms and uh, growing all their seeds on their home farms, but have now begun to shift their home farms to more research and development or trialing gardens. And they've started contracting with other seed growers to do other portions of the growouts that they're offering in their catalogs. And I, I just think that this is a beautiful, and like I said, kind of democratic effort where the small bioregional seed companies are engaging other folks in seed growing. They're giving them contracts or offering them secure sales for for their seeds. And then one of the really beautiful aspects of this work is that many of these bioregional seed companies are very clear and transparent with their shoppers about who is growing the seeds that they're providing in their catalogs. And I think that this is really where the the customer, the gardener or small scale farmer, or even I hope in the longer term, larger scale farmers might be asking these questions of, 
okay, who, who grew this seed? Where was this seed grown? And then we can just in that way, take it back potentially to those first person relationships where I could potentially be seeing that uprising, for example, is offering seed grown by a grower that I could personally contact and ask them to help me uh, do some troubleshooting should problems arise with the the crop that I grow from their seed. So I just think that that's a beautiful thing to have the transparency and then through it, the potential for relationship building, which I think will be essential to this project, uh, this, this bigger picture project. This longer term hope, its dream, its goal of people being in direct relationship and uh, greater knowledge uh, with the seed that supports all of us in in so many ways. Yeah. It's not just it's not just the food, you know. It's not just the carrots and the potatoes. It, it's everything comes back to seed. Like it is the foundation of the the food chain in a thousand ways. Yes, that first person relationship. I like that. I like that term. It's accountability with our seed growers as well as relationship because that transparency not only allows you to see who was growing it, but then, you know, also elucidates how it was grown and it gets back to that cultural discussion you described to us in what bioregional seed means because it's not mm -hmm. just climatic, it's also the cultural caring and and ethos and values that were put in on that level. And yes. all of that is developing different strains and land races of seed that will produce something different in our homes. So we've gotten very uh, big thinking here, which I love, <laughs> but I want to, I want to pull us back down to earth there in Southern Oregon, in Williams, in your homestead garden there at Flora. Can you share for us maybe some of your specific joys in the flower and seed that you are growing currently, Stacy, and what those look like and feel like and mean to you? specifically sure okay so yesterday i was harvesting for my csa members i make mixed bouquets each week and provide flowers for about 20 25 families in the csa and i was about to harvest the ami visnaga and i'm on my second succession the first succession, I didn't get a lot of it cut because at the time that it was blooming, I had many other things that were attractive to me to use instead in my design work. And so the first wave is just a buzz with so many different kinds of pollinators. <laughs> and I'd consider deadheading it back to, to see if I could get another flush of stems from it. But I, I didn't need to because I have another succession that was just starting to come into flower. And I was so in awe of the amount of life surging amongst these umbels. And so I decided to just let the bees and wasps and flies have it. And 
So now it's largely pollinated, those bigger first flowers that were on the ami that I didn't get to cutting. And um, I actually don't need ami seed for myself because I have plenty. I grew it last year out to seed, but it's making beautiful seed. And I just have been thinking about what to do with it. And, and so I'm going to go ahead and let it finish out and share it with this network of cut flower growers because Amia is a very commonly used filler flower. And I think people will have use for it pretty much everyone in, in the network, I'm guessing. And so that's a joy for me to have the, again, that kind of incidental experience of a seed crop occurring where that I can do something like let that whole bed of ami just go to seed and then give it to other farmers. And um, that piece, that word I've used several times of incidental, I find a lot of joy in that experience of surprise and what's unplanned in the garden. And this is one of my favorite things about being a seed grower is that since I have so many flowers that I'm letting go to seed, inevitably I have lots of volunteers coming up in the garden. And I don't really have a tidy garden. My field has a lot of life happening. And of course we weed it and we, we try to stay on top of it, but aren't always able to. And, and that's actually okay by me because it's in those things that I don't plan for that I, I experience a sense of awe and wonder and a lot of learning. So things like Bells of Ireland, I find come up very regularly in my <laughs> garden space. And they actually do far better as volunteers in my field than the ones that I transplant from my greenhouse out into the field. Or I have just tons of amaranth coming up as volunteers throughout my field and and I'm regularly cutting from it at times when what I've planted and intended for cutting is not yet ready didn't perform as well as I'd hoped it would have it's not the right color and yet there I've got all my volunteers ready to be to be harvested from so I appreciate that as a seed grower I can see, I can have these, these surprise crops pop up in the garden that oftentimes they're a lot healthier than what I've transplanted out from the greenhouse. Or I get to see when plants would naturally germinate in the field as opposed to uh, when I sort of manipulate them. There is a way in which as a as a, a farmer focused on production that I, that I am trying to get plants to do certain things for me at certain times. And, and sometimes there's just such a, a beauty and a gift in, in seeing what they offer in their own time. Do you share the seed in the CSA as well sometimes? You know, I haven't done that yet, but that's a really great idea. I like that, Jennifer. I'll share that. You know, I'm playing with these these word choices of incidental or, um, you know, these serendipitous events that lead us to understanding even even more deeply 
our own relationship uh, and the processes of these lives that we are living in partnership with, these plants and seeds and bugs and that um, surging with life description you gave of standing among your your ami and, you know, some of it gone to seed, some of it still in bloom, some of it maybe still budding on the side shoots. Um, it is one that I often have with parsley that I have neglected to cut back or, um, you know, any anything that I have let go to seed. And all of a sudden you realize just what the next step is for it, regardless of you and what you had wanted. And it's, um, it's this great gift of, of understanding more, seeing more and expanding our own vision. Um, as we come to the end here of our conversation, is there anything you would like to add about, you know, the importance of, of where we are in our world and, where these tiny little fabulous packets of life that we call seed, um, where where they fit for you as a as a mother and a business person and a land uh, tender, Stacy. Well, in keeping with the theme of that play on playing with words, incidental or serendipitous, I I just want to underscore there's this this moment of wonder that I don't get to live in many other parts of my life but occurs regularly in the garden where I'm surprised but not just surprised I'm brought into a moment of pause where the world and all my cares and concerns sort of come to a standstill and that regularly happens to me with experiencing seed. And so I, I guess I just would want to share with your listeners that that there's there's a great need for engaging with seed saving on a very practical level. We've talked about why that is. And and there are many reasons why we should do that. Um, but on a deeper level, when we consider why why we do things, what brings us meaning and a sense of reward and deep fulfillment. Seed is an incredible teacher in that way. And so that's another reason to encourage your listeners to save seed. There's going to be a lot of questions, but there are people out there that are eager to help others understand how to do it and observe what that seed does. Does that plant have the kind of flavor that you remember it having the year before? Is it the same color? Is it as vigorous? Is the medicine as potent? So just asking ourselves these questions and making observations and then sharing them with others, sharing the ideas and then sharing the literal seed and the knowledge of, of how you got to where you are with growing that seed. If you decide not to grow seed, but you buy seed to to ask the question of who grew that seed and um, and where they grew it. And I hope that people will really think about how it can support U.S. seed farmers because seeds are our common inheritance as humans. It's something that that has been largely privatized in, in these most recent years. And I think that it's just 
vitally important that we find a way to bring it back into the commons. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been a lovely experience. Thanks, Jennifer. I really appreciate the time and and the good work that you're doing. Stacey Denton is the founder and owner of Flora Farm and Design Studio, an organic flower farm, bioregional seed grower, and homestead based in the Klamath-Siskiyou region of Southern Oregon. of plants and place and seed season, now is a great time to harvest seed and save it to plant out next year or the next. While seed saving is an art and a science, and some plants require complex understanding and treatment, some seed saving is very straightforward, and it is all worth trying. In many ways, the plants and seeds give you pretty clear instructions themselves. You just need to spend a little time paying attention and reading each flower and fruit's seasonal signals. Seeds appear on our annual and perennial seed-bearing plants throughout the year, depending on their bloom cycle. Walking around my own garden today, lavender, native buckwheats, gabiosa, delphinium, native deer grass, and blue gramma grass all have ripe seed on them. In the vegetable garden, I have lettuce, arugula, parsley, and dill seed heads, as well as dry beans almost ready to collect. I can see that my sweet peas not only set seed, but at this point in the season, their dried seed pods popped open and dispersed their peas all around quite a while ago, so I missed saving those this year. As Stacy Denton of Flora Farm and Design Studio shared with us, if you're new to this, consider starting small by choosing just one or two kinds of seeds from the plant in your garden to harvest and save. As I'm sure somebody recommended to me, I'd recommend to any new seed savers out there that you start with those plants who form dry seed heads. So, for example, maybe don't start with tomatoes or rose hips. Lettuce, allium, sunflowers, scabiosa, and nasturtiums are great seeds to begin with, but there are plenty of others. Once you decide which seeds you'd like to save, pay attention to if and when the seed is ready to harvest. I might have missed the timing on my sweet peas this year, but as I look around my garden, several plants are letting me know they're ready right now because the dry seed heads are starting to shatter and disperse themselves. The little plumes on the lettuce seeds are being blown off by the wind. The native chocolate flower seed heads have shattered onto the ground below them. The allium seed pods are so dry they've cracked open a little so that I can see the small jet black seeds peeking through. Try to harvest seed that has not yet left the seed head but is just about to. This way, you avoid any excess bacteria or fungal friends or cues to germinate that might come from the seed interacting with the soil or moisture below. Collect your seed on a dry day in the afternoon after the sun has removed any morning dew. 
Then do your best to separate the seeds themselves from the pods or the chaff that held that seed. You can cut dried seed heads into a paper bag and shake them around to separate the seed from its pod material, or you can brush seed gently between your hands to get fluff and dried bits of the pod off. You can also screen the seed in a strainer of the right mesh size to leave any debris above the mesh and the seed falling below the mesh. The cleaner you can get your seed, the better the chances it will store well and remain viable longer. Once your seed is clean, dry it even further in the open air in a clean, warm space out of direct sunlight for a few more days. Once you think it's very, very dry, then store it in an airtight lidded jar or a sealed envelope in a cool, dry place, waiting patiently to be planted next spring. Once you start saving seed, you're going to have a hard time stopping. The magic of the many different shapes and colors and sizes of seed is hard to not be transported by. To learn more about seed saving and seed savers, make sure to circle back to the many great Cultivating Place conversations with seed people, from Rowan White to Ira Wallace, True Love Seeds, Redwood Seed, Fruition Seeds, and more. Also, make sure to check out Stacy Denton's Seed Crop Series posts on Instagram, or follow other seed keepers to keep learning more. There are so many great books on seed saving. A particular favorite of mine is The Seed Garden, The Art and Practice of Seed Saving, edited by Lee Butala and Shannon Siegel for Seed Savers Exchange in 2015. For this week's full conversation with Stacy Denton, including much more information and many images from her Flora Farm and Design Studio, including online floral design classes, seed and plant sales like organic dahlia tubers beginning in November, head on over to this week's show notes under the podcast tab over at cultivatingplace.com. Listen in next week when we think ahead to our native plant gardens in preparation for the fall planting window and the spring planning ahead in conversation once again with Uli Lorimer of the Native Plant Trust, whose newest book, The Northeast Native Plant Primer, is rich with lessons for us all. Join us then. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you. Thank you for all of your growing support through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with tech and web support by Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation and the seeds of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.